That being said, I'm going to go ahead and get right to it. If you've got a Bible, grab it. Uh, There's some on the outside of the rows. If you don't own a Bible, the ones on the outside of the rows are uh, a gift to you. Take that with with you if you don't own a Bible, and um, that's a gift to you. Also, we'll just assume that you're looking at your Bible. If you've got your phone out and you use your phone as your Bible, this is the 21st century, so uh, that's what we'll do. And if you turn, turn uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians is, you're going to find it near the back of the book. There's no shame in using the table of contents. I still use it all the time, which you'll find in the front to figure out where 2 Corinthians is. Turn there, put your finger there, and I'll get back to it in just a minute. Uh, So you can keep turning there. But I want to kind of let you in. We're doing a special series for the launch of the church. Um... And the title of the series is, What If It's True? What if it's true? It changes everything. So the reason we're asking the question, what if it's true, and not just, is it true? Is it true is a very important question. It's the most important question you can probably ask, but I think sometimes we can get stuck behind it. So this week we're asking, what if it's true? If you really struggle with the question, is it true? Because we're not, I mean, we're covering a little bit, but, but that's not the main focus. I bought a bunch of these little books here. You'll find them at the the welcome table in the back. That's another gift to you. I'm just giving away gifts. This is a great place to be. Lots of gift giving. This is a this is called uh, this is just like a little pocket book that answers some of the tough questions. Uh, can I believe Christianity is true? So this one will answer. Is it tr- help help you kind of wrestle through and consider that question? Is it true? Uh, but today and next week, we're going to be talking about what if it's true. And the reason we want to say what if it's true and not is it true is because so often we get stuck behind that question, is it true? If you're not yet a Christian and you're still considering wrestling through is it true, you can get stuck behind that question and never look around the backside and, and see the implications of the gospel. And the implications of the gospel, if it is true, are amazing. And it changes everything. And so I want to help us kind of just get around that question and look at the other side. And then at some point, you've got to come back and you've got to ask, is it true? But we're going to just step around and ask, what if it's true? And if it's true, it changes everything. If you're already a Christian, you can get stuck behind that question too. Is it true? Every time um, somebody you get talking, you just affirm that, yes, I believe it's true. Yes, I believe it's true. But what if it's true? It changes everything. And so whether, wherever you're at on, on your journey of consideration, you need to step around the question, is it true, and ask, what if it's true? And the answer that, that we're trying to show is that it changes everything. So just play along with, with us today and kind of press pause on, is it true, and say, what if it's true? And so we're looking at three elements. It changes a lot of things, but we're looking at three elements. Last week, we talked about suffering. If the gospel is true, then it changes suffering. Suffering is not the same as it was before Uh, the gospel happened. And so, let me just read to you from last week. Uh, This is actually in 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read read to you uh, the Apostle Paul's definition of what is the gospel. So when we're asking, is it true, we know what it is. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, 
then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. So that's the gospel. That's the it that we're talking about. If it is true that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again three days later and then he proved that he had risen by appearing to over 500 people, if that is true, it changes everything. And so last week we talked about suffering and this week we're gonna talk about that dirty little word, relationship. It changes relationship. Relationship is not the same if the gospel is true. And so we're gonna look at that. And, and, and I think the reason that we want to look at relationship is because, uh, if we're honest, that's what it's all about. It affects everything in our life when we talk about relationship. And relationships, we don't always do very well. We struggle with relationship. Uh, relationships aren't what they seem like they could be. Divorce rates are much higher than they should be. Marriage is hard. My coworkers are hard to get along with. Nobody likes their boss. Let's just be honest. Relationships are hard. So relationships are hard, but they affect everything because everything is a relationship, and so this seems like a pretty important topic. So we're picking this topic, relationships. How does the gospel change relationships? Now this is, again, a problem that everybody has. Uh, nobody doesn't struggle with relationship. There's nobody I've met that doesn't struggle with relationship. If you haven't struggled with relationship, you should write a book and make lots of money and then admit that you're a liar <laughs> and make more money because then everybody wants to talk to you and then you can write another book. It's a great plan. And uh, <laughs> the problem is you gotta be really, really good at faking it because relationships, they, they make everybody stumble. Relationships make everybody stumble. So, there's a couple of ways to work through it. Uh, and I think one of the, the main ways people tend to view relationship and to try to get around the problem of relationship, because it's so hard, is they say, I'll just change relationship uh, into, into a, an economic exchange. So it's like the transactional view of relationship. Um, have you ever said this? I owe you one. When somebody does something nice for you, then you're viewing relationship as a transaction because if I do something nice for you, I expect something in return. Or if you do something nice for me, I can't just receive it. I have to say, I'll get you next time. This is probably, in our society, the way we view relationship most often. Quid pro quo, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's an economic gain. And if you game, and if you're good at the game, you can make relationships go a long way for you, right? And so we view relationships not for them in and of themselves, but what they can give us. And so we put a higher value on the end, which is not the relationship, than the means, which is the relationship. So relationships become stepping stones. We network to advance in our career. We multiply our relationships to affirm our popularity. We surround ourselves in relationships to avoid loneliness, or at least the appearance of loneliness. We try to get from relationships love, significance, power, attention. I think this is the main way that we view relationship. It's a transactional view. It's the economic game that we play with relationship. But there's other ways that people deal with relationship. Now, now, now these relationships, 
I mean, you might see a little bit of yourself in all of these. Uh, I see a little bit of myself in all of these as well. Another way that we could deal with it is we could simply tolerate the imperfection of relationships. So we recognize that there's something wrong, but we just tolerate it. And there's two ways to tolerate it. The first is that we tolerate it by just accepting it and convincing ourselves that this is just the way it is. So we have this deep longing, this deep desire. I know that my marriage can be better than this. I know that my relationship with my parents can be better than this. My relationship with my kids or my siblings or my best friends. I know that it can be better, but you know what? What do we say? Well, this is just the way it always has been, and this is the way it always will be. Or this is what I deserve. I deserve to be treated like this in relationship. And so uh, I'll say that we baptize it as okay. We baptize it. We say, you know what? That's okay. That's just the way it is. And so we tolerate it by accepting it, by baptizing it. And we can even do this within religious structures, right? So like, for instance, uh, in in a religion like Hinduism, uh, they'll actually create social structures. It's called the caste system. And so they create, you know, one of, you could be in one of four levels of society and and those levels don't interact well and there's tension and all of that. uh, But there's actually even one unmentionable category of people, they're called the outcasts or the untouchables, uh, known as the Dalits. And so what we do is we create a religious structure or doctrine around these relationships that are broken and imperfect so that we can accept them and say, well, this is just the way it is. Now, Christianity has this same struggle. We can do the same thing. For instance, in the South, during slavery, we would use our religion to uh, excuse what we had built. The relationships that were broken and severed, and so we use our religion. So no, no religion or uh, set of beliefs is, can avoid this completely, so you have to constantly be asking, is this what I'm doing with my relationships? The other way to tolerate relationships is uh, we realize that they're imperfect, and so what we say is, I'm not going to get too close to anybody. And so we either keep people at arm's length, or we completely separate ourselves from any meaningful relationship. And that's our way of tolerating it. Yeah, we know that relationships are broken. We know that they're imperfect. But you know what? I'm going to tolerate it by separating myself from relationship. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm better off alone, we say. Who needs relationship? I'm the only one that's never let myself down. If they don't really know me, then they can't hurt me. And it won't hurt when they let me down. So again, uh, This we can accept both just in our own head or we can create a belief system around it that helps us cope with broken relationships. Now hear me, when I talk about this, the coping mechanisms that we use are not, uh, they're natural because we realize that the relationships are broken and so it's natural to want to create something to explain away why we can't get relationship right, why we can't fix the problem And so we create these structures. And so another instance is uh, Buddhism would tell us that, you know what, you have this strong desire for your relationships to be better, but that's actually the problem that you desire relationship. And that's the cause of your suffering in relationship. And so what we say is, as long as you can get rid of the desire, then the suffering goes away. And so what you actually do is you need to separate yourself from meaningful relationship because relationship's not a real thing, it's a fake thing, and this is the belief system that you set up. Why? 
because it hurts, because relationships hurt, and we don't want to feel, and so we separate, and that's how we tolerate the brokenness of relationship. Have you ever seen the movie or read the book Into the Wild? Uh, Into the Wild's a movie and a book about this young man, true story, Christopher McCandless, and he goes and he, uh, he graduates, and he says, you know what? I've just got to disengage. I've got to separate myself from any, anybody in my life with meaning, and I'm going to go on a great adventure. And so he cuts up his credit cards, and he gets lost, and nobody knows where he's gone. His family doesn't know, and he goes on these great adventures. And he continues to kind of move his way across the country, and eventually he says, I'm going to head to Alaska, because in Alaska, that's where we get away from the connections. And so he goes, and he finds himself finally in Alaska. Well, at the beginning... At the beginning of his journey, this is what he says about life. He says, The joy of life comes from our encounters with new experiences, and hence there is no greater joy than to have an endlessly changing horizon for each day to have a new and different sun. And so this is the optimistic. When he's setting out on his journey, he says, This is going to, this is going to fix it if I can just get rid of my connections, and each day is a new experience and a new, uh, a new sunrise. Well, as the story goes, if you've seen the book or, or read the book or seen the movie, what you realize is that he gets out and he's finally completely by himself, and he, yeah, this is the ideal, right? Completely by himself. He's living in this old van in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness. Winter hits. It becomes hard to find food, and as he slowly, I, I hope I don't give this away, as he's slowly dying, <laughs> as he's slowly dying, he starts to realize that this isn't true happiness. And spoiler alert, he doesn't make it out. <laughs> I'm so sorry if I ruined that for you. <laughs> he doesn't make it out. And he dies and just days before he dies, and he dies of starvation. And he, and he actually eats some poisonous berries, uh, but oh, I don't need to tell you the movie. He writes this. He writes this in his journal. He writes this in his journal. He says, happiness is only real when shared. Happiness is only real when shared. And so he's gone on this journey, and it's a sad ending to the story, but in a sense, he's found true meaning to life, even though he didn't get to experience it. Happiness is only real when shared. And so I think we sometimes have this idea, if I could just separate myself from all my relationships, and you don't have to go to the Alaskan wilderness to do this. You can do this right here. You could be sitting in this room and stay, say, I'm going to keep arm's length and not get connected to anybody here, and then I won't get hurt. But the problem is it's not true, and eventually it will be sh- shown to be bankrupt, and, and, you'll, and you'll end up saying, I just wish I would shared life with somebody. So the last way that I think we tend to deal with relationships is by control, okay? So we don't separate, uh, we don't tolerate through baptizing things as okay, and uh, we maybe don't always think of it as a transaction, but what we do is say, I'm going to control it, because if I can control it, then I can create a sense of peace, and then I won't get hurt by the relationship. So as long as I'm in control, then I can't be hurt. 
And so we can do this in a couple of ways. We can manipulate the relationships. This looks a little bit like the transactional. So we can create good deals for ourselves in this economic exchange so that we get what we want, but we feel like we're in control because as long as we're bartering in our relationships, then we're, we're manipulating and controlling. But the other way, we can dominate or we can coerce. We can dominate or we can coerce because if we do that, then we can control the situation and the relationship won't hurt. This is fear-based relationship. Uh, we use physical, mental, uh, emotional, spiritual, fear-based relationship tactics to try to control the relationship because we don't want it to control us because we know that relationships are easily broken and they hurt. And so we control. Again, uh, we can baptize these sort of, this sort of thinking into our religion. We can say, you know, Islam would do this. They would say domination uh, is the way. And so in relationships, uh, they tend to dominate, especially male over female. And that's not the way I think it's supposed to be. So the question then, is there another way? Is there another way? And of course, I think that there is. I wouldn't be standing here. I wouldn't be um, explaining this if I didn't think that there was another way. And I think if the gospel is true, if it is true, then it offers a completely different way to think about and to approach relationship. To think about and approach relationship. And so we're going to look at it, and we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to look at Romans 5, and we're going to say, what does God tell us through his word about how relationship is meant to work? And the reason that we come and we study this book is because we believe that God has communicated to us. And part of the reason that he's communicated to us is because he's created us to be communicative beings. So he said, I created language. I've given you language. I'm going to use language to speak to you and tell you how I designed you to be and created you and what kind of a God I am. And so we're going to see that all today. Uh, and what we find, and this is just an overarching, these are the overarching themes of God's word, the Bible, is that God is a triune God. In himself, there's actually relationship built in. That's what's important about the Christian view of who God is, is that it's one God and three persons, three and one. I don't have time to unpack that. That's why you got to hang out with us longer you know, than a week because we'll unpack a lot of these things. There's, there's a lot to know about God. It never gets old considering him and his ways and who he is because there's a lot to know. This is one of them, but Scripture describes God as one but three. And so within God himself, there is this interrelationship. And so then it says God created a good creation. And in his creation of a good creation... Uh, he created human beings last, and he said human beings are very good, and he says they're created in my image. And so what should we expect that the image would look like but relational beings, right? Which is exactly what we are. It's what we find. This is so important to understand because if you buy into the myth that relationships aren't supposed to be good, then you won't ever work on your relationships, but if God created, and he's a relational God, and he's created us to be in relationship, then of course it's good, and so we should seek and want to be in relationship, which means we have to work on relationships. So there's a triune God, he's relational in himself, and he creates, and he creates uh, human beings specifically in his image, and they're supposed to relate. They're supposed to relate, and so we talked about this 
last week, but I'll explain it again. I mean, think about God's creation in this way. He's like a magnet here. And he's created, and, and you've, got like a, you've got like a steel ring, and he's created us to be in relationship with him. So as long as we're in relationship with him, we're good. But then uh, there's another steel ring that is attached, and as long as it's touching this steel ring, and this steel ring's touching the magnet, then it sticks together. And there's another steel ring, which is the creation. So we've got like ourselves, we've got uh, other human beings, and we've got the rest of creation. And so as long as we're connected to the magnet, it works. It's, it all sticks together. The relationships are good. They work like they're supposed to work. But then something happens. Human beings decide, wait a minute, I don't necessarily want to be connected to God because I want to control, I want to do it my way. I want to do it God's way. And so we purposefully sever this relationship, and then what happens to everything else? It falls. And this is the biblical doctrine of the fall. And so because we sin against God and we say, you know what, God, I know you told me this and this is the way you want me to do it. I don't think I'll do it my own way. We break that connection. Everything else falls apart and so we fall into the state. This is known as the fall. So we have creation. By the triune God, we have the fall. Uh, but God doesn't leave us there because why? Because he cares about relationship because he created. And so what does he, what does he say? Right after it happens, you can go back and you can read it. First three chapters. You only got to read three chapters of the Bible to come up with all this stuff. Creation, fall, and the hope of redemption. God promises that I will redeem what is broken. That includes the creation that becomes broken. That includes us and our relationships with each other. But most importantly, that includes our relationship with God. And so he promises redemption. And so you have this overarching theme that you read in Scripture. Creation, fall, hope of redemption and then that hope that promise that God makes comes to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ and so that's kind of the arc of of the narrative of of scripture and so when we come to Jesus Christ we find the way to fix the problem of relationship we find the way to fix the problem of relationship we were created for this for authentic, open, honest relationships with one another. We're created to be, have good relation with the, the, the ground that God has created, but all of it wars together. And then, and then we come to the apex of Scripture when Christ, the Son of God, comes and he does something. Now, if it's true that what he did actually happened, then it changes everything. So let's look at why it changes everything. Turn with me now, if you've still got your finger there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are going to start in verse 16 and read through the rest of the chapter. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, therefore, this is the Apostle Paul talking, he's writing to the Corinthians. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though once we regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me just stop here and let's pray as we try to unpack the word of God. Father, we thank you so much that we can, that we can gather in this way, that we can come and we can study your word. We thank, thank you that you were not silent, that you've given us your word, that we can know what is true and real and good. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you'd give us eyes tonight to see what you have to say to us about reconciliation, about the way to fix relationship. And so I pray, as always, uh, that tonight anything that is from you would stick and anything that is not of you uh, would pass away quickly. Uh, Our hope, Lord, is to know you better, uh, to understand ourselves better, and then to live in relationship with others better. So we pray that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's dig in now to the scripture, and you say, what do you mean dig in? I mean turn to Romans chapter 5. So that's just a few pages to the left. Maybe take like a little chunk and just flip, and you'll probably find Romans, and you're going to look at chapter 5. This is another letter that Paul wrote, and so we're using scripture to try to understand scripture better. It's always the best interpreter of itself. So we come to Romans chapter 5. And we see the same idea. And the idea that we're talking about is reconciliation. How does the gospel change relationship? It changes it because it introduces the idea of reconciliation. Now, we may use this word a lot, but I don't think we actually understand what reconciliation is. Because if we understood what reconciliation really is, we would not be in the the mess we are when it comes to relationships. Our relationships would not be as bad if we understood what true reconciliation is. But we can't know what true reconciliation is unless we come to the Word of God and look at the source of reconciliation, which is God Himself. So that's what we're going to try to do. Romans chapter 5 gives us another insight. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by this life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received 
Reconciliation. So there's this word that comes up over and over and over again. Reconciliation. What is reconciliation? I want to look, look at it because if we can figure out what true reconciliation is, then I think we can actually gain some ground when it comes to relationship. Okay? So there's two keys to reconciliation. There's two keys to reconciliation. The first is the idea of covenant. The idea of covenant. Now reconciliation actually means the reestablishment of an interrupted or broken relationship. So here's why reconciliation is so important. First we've got to understand that God desires it. He desires it so much. And the reason he desires it is because he hates that relationships aren't functioning the way that they're supposed to function. And so he hates that relationship is broken, and so he wants to reestablish the interrupted or broken relationship. So God doesn't need relationship to be restored so that he can accomplish some other ends. God uses every means to restore a relationship. You see how that's different? That's so different, I think, than the way... To be honest, I often view relationship. He doesn't need relationship for some ends. He goes to the end to restore relationship. And so the keys to understanding God's reconciling to us is covenant and judgment. Covenant is this. Covenant is not a contract. Covenant is not a contract. Covenant is not a contract. So, if you were thinking that contract is the same as covenant, you'd be wrong. It's not the same. Just want to make that clear. So, we live in a contractual world, world, right? I got my cell phone contract, my gym contract, I got my internet contract. Some of us still have a cable contract. I'll pray for you. You know, you can just buy like rabbit ears and then you can use Netflix and stuff. Save you a lot of money. We have contracts all around us, and so lots of times we think, well, my relationship, I'll use it as a contract, because we understand how contracts work. Contract works, I pay something, I get something. I do something, I get something. As soon as either party becomes disgruntled, you know what? We can void the contract. Or we can void the contract by paying whatever fee to get out of the contract. That is not the way that covenant works. That is not the way that God relates to us. He relates to us covenantally in a covenant relationship. And so this is completely different. And what is a covenant? The best way to understand a covenant is to look at Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still, what? Weak. This isn't physically weak. This is morally weak. Meaning while we were still making all the wrong decisions... Slapping God in the face again and again while we were still weak morally at the right time Christ died for us. Look again, verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. This term enemies is about as strong a term as it can be. It doesn't mean like, well, just because our relationship with God wasn't perfect... He died for us. No. Enemies, we were rebels against God, fighting against God. While we were enemies with God, what did he do? He died for us. 
People in contractual relationships don't do that. Why does God do that for us? While we were still weak, sinners, enemies of God, why did he die for us? The answer is because he loves us covenantally, which means it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with who God is. And so we see that back in Genesis chapter 3, that God makes a promise, and what he does is again and again and again he makes these promises, and they're, and, and they're not necessarily reciprocal. Now, God hopes that we reciprocate the kind of love he has for us back to him, but it, it, it's, it, it's not necessary because he is acting in accordance with the promise that he's made, the covenant he's made with us. So he says, I am going to redeem my fallen, sinful, rebellious enemies that, <laughs> that I've created that have rebelled against me, that sinned against me, that are morally weak. I've promised, and I always keep my promises because I'm God. That's the way the covenant works. It's not a contract. It's not a contract. We say, well, you know, I grew up in church, or I didn't grow up in church, but I've watched the History Channel, so I know what the church is about. That was supposed to be a joke. And uh, love the History Channel. Vikings, great show. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And... uh, You say, I know that Christianity is about a contract. If I do this for God, then he gives me eternal life. That's how it works. I know that. That's what I was taught. Well, you were taught wrong. That is not how it works. Let me say it again. Covenant is not a contract. God does not do any of the things he's done for you because you have done something for him. You were an enemy, you were weak, and you're a sinner. And he died for you. Because he loves you covenantally. You say, well, I thought it was a contract. I wish it was a contract. I can control the contract. God doesn't love you like that. He says, I promise that I wouldn't leave you broken. I promise that I wouldn't leave you isolated and alone without relationship with me and with broken relationships with everyone. Don't you remember? I promised this to you in Genesis 3 right after You rebelled against me. I promised this, that I would fix it, that I'd put it right, and I've been setting the pieces in place, and when the time is right, when the time is right, I sent my son to die for you. That's my covenant, and I'm keeping it, and I'm proving it through the cross of Christ, and it's vindicated by the resurrection. It worked. What God said he would do, he would do. And here's the great thing about the way a covenant works, and it's different than a contract. There is no expiration date on a covenant. It doesn't matter how long you wait to redeem. It does not expire. Sometimes I'll bring leftovers home, you know, and it's a great gift that I've brought home for Allie, my wife, and I say, I brought you home some great leftovers. Some pad CU from the Thai spot. That's the only thing I eat at a Thai restaurant. I'm going to leave it in the refrigerator for you. Whenever you want it, go ahead. Eat it. It's yours. My gift to you. I love you so much. I love you. I love you more than any husband loves a wife. That's why I brought you this Pad CU. I love saying Pad CU. It's great. You should go, you should go to a Thai restaurant with me. It's great. A Pad CU. Wayne. No. 
Only some people get that joke. Uh, I leave it in the refrigerator, and then it's like an hour goes by. Oh, man, I probably should have eaten the whole thing when I did, but I gave it to my wife, and then two hours goes by. Man, I better sleep this off. And then I wake up in the morning. Man, that's still there. She hasn't eaten that yet. What's she doing? A day, you know, half a day goes by. Always by the next night, I eat that leftover. I'm going to say, you didn't, I mean, it's going to go bad. You didn't have it. That's not the way that God's covenant for us works. And the reason I want to explain this is because I think some of us, we hear this, we say, yeah, when I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Okay, but I haven't picked it up yet. It's probably expired. That is not how it works. It is still waiting for you in the refrigerator. And it will be waiting there forever for you. He doesn't take it back. He doesn't give it to somebody else. He'd be like, man, I bought you this gift card, but you're not using it. I think I'm going to use it to take my wife out to a date. No, he doesn't re-gift it. He doesn't use it. He's done it for you. That's the way a covenant works. It's not a contract. It has no expiration date. So why does God make these covenants with us that have nothing to do with us, but they're promises that he makes? Because that's the way it's always supposed to be. He can't do relationship any other way. He never does relationship any other way. It's part of who he is. This is so important. It's not like he's choosing. He's saying, I can't do it any other way. I make promises and I keep my promises. I am God. I am not like you. And he's saying, come back to what you were designed to be. Come back to this idea of covenantal relationship. So reconciliation only happens because it's one way. So look, look back at the text, what it says. Chapter 11. Through whom you have now received reconciliation. We had nothing to do with it. Because it's one way. It's a covenant. It's a promise God made and a promise he kept. It's one way. It's a covenant relationship. We receive it. God's done it for us. So... That's the first part of reconciliation that makes it so different than the way the rest of the world, every other way of thinking works. It's not this idea. It's not this idea of karma. It's not this idea of working your way. It's this idea of God and who he is and the way he loves us. But there's another thing that has to happen for reconciliation, for it to actually be real reconciliation, and it's the idea of judgment. You say, Dave, don't go there. Don't talk about judgment. It has to be judgment. If you don't judge something, then you're, then you're not recognizing that it's broken. And so when God sees the condition that we're in, he says, yeah, that's not the way I created it. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's broken. And so I have to make a judgment about it, and I have to step in, and I have to do something about it. So reconciliation requires a step forward. Notice in verse 8, what God says. Sorry, what Paul says. The word of God. Verse 8. But God shows his, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, yet while we were still sinners, Christ tolerated our sin, ignored our sin, pretended our sin did not exist, 
developed helpful ways around the problem of sin, changed the rules about sin. That doesn't work. What did he have to do? He had to die. Christ died for our sin. You see that? It's not that God's just tolerating our sin or ignoring it or pretending it doesn't exist or saying, oh, those little kids, I can't believe they messed that up. No, he had to do something about it, objectively do something, and he came and he died. Why did he do that? Because reconciliation takes, requires judgment. Let me give you another great example about my wife, because I love to talk about my wife. I hope I don't get in trouble for this one. She works the night shift at Seattle Children's Hospital. She's a saint. There's several saints in this room. They help pediatric nurses. This is one of the safest places to be on a Sunday night in Seattle if you have kids. Let me just tell you that. The ratio is like three to one nurses to normal human beings. She's a nurse. She works the night shift. And so for three nights, usually every week in a row, she is working and I'm home alone and uh, I'm, I'm not quite as clean as my wife is, and so, yeah, you know, there's sometimes we've got a dish here, a dish there, maybe a shoe out of place. My wife is very organized, very clean. She likes things the way she likes things. It's her house. It's not my house. If you came over, you'd say, a man lives here. Not really. <laughs> so after three nights, she'll come back, and she'll probably sleep, but then she'll wake up midday, and, and what will happen, and sometimes it doesn't wait that long. Sometimes she'll come back after working 13 hours straight, and she'll start judging right then. But she enacts judgment on our home. What do I mean? She sees it. She recognizes it. it is not right. It is not the way she left it. It is not the way it's supposed to be. It is not the home that she's created, and she needs to objectively fix something. Now, there's a number of ways that judgment work. It doesn't always mean she's got to clean up. Sometimes she will guilt me into doing it. This, uh, there, and there's nothing wrong with it. It needed to happen because it was broken. I, I broke it. The house was broken. It needed to be fixed. Allie, here, is she here? Hear this, darling. It was broken. I'm so sorry. And we are reconciling it. But what does she do? She begins to reconcile, and it is an objective reality. Because it's broken, she has to fix the house and put it back the way it was supposed to be. But it doesn't just happen by her, you know, hoping good thoughts or kind of, you know, if she just left for three more nights in a row, it's not like it's just going to fix itself. It needs her judgment to come in and reconcile it back to the way that it should be. It's a silly example, but I hope it makes sense, that something has to be done. If she closes her eyes, it doesn't go away. If she leaves, it doesn't go away. The only thing that makes it go away is judgment and reconciliation. So reconciliation needs somebody to step in. Now, now hear me, I'm not saying that it has to be Allie who does it. I'm going to get in trouble for this, I know I am. <laughs> but it's an important example. Husbands, do not leave the dishes out overnight. Put those away. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, come on. I mean, it's right there, the dishwasher. Why do you put it in the sink? If you got a cup, a coffee cup, put it in the dishwasher. How hard is that? The sink's the same as the dishwasher, right? Okay, if you have not heard that, you're the best husband in the world. Okay, we're moving on. i got to move off this analogy. But the idea is that uh, <laughs> judgment 
is required to true reconciliation. Can't close your eyes. Here's the principle. Um, If our relationships are really broken with God and with others, we have to acknowledge that it's broken and somebody has to step into the problem and somebody has to objectively do something because reconciliation requires wounds. Reconciliation requires wounds. Martin Luther King Jr. understood this. Just saw the movie Selma this week. He recognized that reconciliation, if it was ever going to happen, needed somebody to step in, not somebody to step back. And so early on in the movie, if you haven't seen the movie, he's talking uh, to Lyndon B. Johnson. He's talking to the president, and he's saying, uh, we need to do something. And and, uh, LBJ says, well, let's just take a step back, and we'll let things calm down. And Martin Luther King rightly says, that's not going to fix anything. Reconciliation takes stepping into And if you know, of course, everyone knows the story. He stepped in to the pain and the brokenness of the relationship between races, and he got wounded. And those who followed him got wounded. But true reconciliation began to happen. Because reconciliation takes wounds. And here's the sad part. And we got to recognize this. Lots of times, it's the wounded who have to take the step in. If you've been wounded in a relationship, lots of times if you just wait for the other party to take the first step, they won't. Martin Luther King, African Americans, they were the ones that had been wounded, but they had to take the step. They had to take the step in. Should we be surprised? We are the ones that wounded God, yet God is the one who steps in on our behalf. Reconciliation requires wounds. That's the great news. That's the good news of the gospel. If it's true, then God has stepped in and he has been wounded for us. Christ has been bruised. He's been beaten. He's been spit on and scorned. Wounded for our transgressions. Mocked, flogged. Carried his cross through the streets. Hands, feet nailed to the cross. Hung, gasping for for breath. He died. Wounded for us. By his scars, I am healed. Jesus Christ took the wounds, and we get the blessing. That is not how the world sees relationship, but that's the way God sees relationship. It's completely different. If it's true, it changes everything. If it's true, it changes everything. Reconciliation is not a sentiment It's not a postcard or a holiday card. It takes objective, real, hard work. And you got to get your hands dirty. And so, and so, if Christ has done this for us, if it's true that he has, has been wounded for us, and he has given us reconciliation, that we've been reconciled to God, through the cross of Christ and his resurrection, if we have been reconciled to God, well then what does that mean for us? Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we come back to where we began. And Paul tells us what the proper response is to us recognizing God's work of reconciliation. Verse 18. 
All of this is from God. So the source is God. It begins with God. It has to begin with God because he is the creator of all things, including reconciliation. So it begins with God. All things, all of this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. He did the work of reconciliation. He was the one with the covenant. He was the one that enacted judgment, not judgment on us, but judgment on his son. You've got to see the flip there. He enacted judgment. He has to because he's a just God, he's holy, and he can't just let it sit there, so he enacts judgment, but not on us, on his son, and, look at what, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Jump down to the end of verse 19. Entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, and we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so, By very nature, because we serve a God, we're created in his image, he's the God of relationship, the God of all things, and he is the author of reconciliation, the great divine reconciler, Christ himself, who we're being created into the image of, because of all of that, we must then be ministers of reconciliation. It has to start with us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're not involved in the ministry of reconciliation, whether that's on a micro level in one-on-one relationships or a larger level, then you're not getting it. And the way you get it is by being reminded of what Christ has done for you. We must be reminded of what he's done so that we can become ministers of reconciliation. And what do ministers do? We value relationship more than the benefits of relationship. We recognize that all relationships are not as they should be. We desire We desire reconciliation. We have to desire it. It has to burn in our bones. We have to desire it. We don't just tolerate non-reconciliation. We step in. It's tough, hard, covenantal work. We We must make judgment, make action upon the brokenness. And we don't give up because God never gives up on us. We don't work for a bit of reconciliation, and when it's not received or reciprocated, we pull back and we said, I did my best. We keep pushing in. We leave it in the refrigerator. We wait for it to be received. And then we rinse and repeat, and we do it all again. That's what it means to be a minister of reconciliation. And it is hard work, but it's the work of Christ. If it's true, the gospel is true, then we must be ministers of reconciliation. We must be ministers of reconciliation. This is going to take some work. If this community that we're forming here wants to be a ministry, or a community of ministers of reconciliation, it's got to start here. We've got to do it here. We've got to have the hard conversations. We've got to step in. And if both people are stepping in, it can be a beautiful thing. It can change everything about what our community is and look like, looks like and feels like. So what do we do? What if, like, like God, we valued relationships that much and we stopped treating them like economic games, committed ourselves in covenant, not contracts, to one another? We didn't put expiration dates on all our, our apologies and our forgiveness We didn't require reciprocity when we did something nice. What if, if, like God, we actually took on wounds, the wounds of reconciliation? 
man, it would change everything about the kind of community this was. People would see it and say, this isn't the normal community. I've never seen a community like this. This is completely different. And that's exactly what we're called to be. And what will happen is our community will be a community of trust. Because when people live like that covenantally, and they, they live like that with the sacrifice of wounds for reconciliation, you begin to trust people in a new way. Think of the person in your, in your life that most reflects this kind of relationship. You trust that person so much because you know that their motives are good. You trust them. So we begin to trust. And of course, Christ is most to be trusted because he's done it first and most completely. So, we've got to fight for it because God fought for it. He didn't step away from us, but he took on flesh. He didn't tolerate us, but he took on our wounds to make peace. He didn't coerce us into relationship or dominate us or force us. He didn't bully us or or push down the door or exploit us for his own gain, but he patiently waits for us. And so he deserves our trust because we should trust people that live in relationship like this. So if you're asking tonight, well, what if it's true? I would tell you, it changes everything. It changes everything about what you've thought about what relationship is, what it can be, what it should be, what God wants for you to have. And if it's true, there's only one place that it can start. There's only one place that it can start. Because God is the author of relationship, and he's the author of reconciliation, and you can't just pick up all the pieces all the spheres that have dropped out of place, you can't just pick those up and just hope to get them together. You've got to start by being reconnected to God. You've got to start by, by reconnecting that relationship. Because it's only in Him, verse 21 of 2 Corinthians. Let me read it for you again. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him. We must be connected to the source of reconciliation if we want to try to be people of reconciliation. So we've got to reconnect to God. We've got to reconnect with God. And we can't reconnect with God by treating him in the same way we've always treated him. We can't reconnect with God and by saying, well, I'll worship you if you give me good things and you keep my life on track and you give me everything I want. That's not reconnecting in this kind of relationship with God. You can't only give to God when he gives to you. You can't exploit his name to get what you want. But you must value your relationship with God above the benefits of the relationship. You've got to trust God with what's most precious to you because that's what people in covenant relationship do. And God wants that kind of relationship with us. And then you've got to make the promise. You've got to make the kind of covenant promise to God that he's made to us. It's not contingent. It never expires. You say, I will follow you. I will trust you. I will place my life in your hands. I'm getting rid of plan B, C, D, and E. There's no other plan. I'm following you. 
So you got to respond to him in the way he responded to us. Covenantal love. And you know what? It might wound us. But it's real reconciliation. And it'll change every other relationship in our life. So we've asked, what if it's true? I think it changes everything. And I think that it would require to answer the question, is it true if you're still wrestling with that? More than just one night to figure it out. And so this is hopefully the kind of community that welcomes you in. And it's not conditional on you got to be in the same place as everybody else to be a part of this. Uh, because we want to love you with covenantal love. And we're willing to do the hard work it takes to help you figure out, is it true? Is Christ worth putting my trust in? Is it all worth it? And so as, as Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, he says, be reconciled to God and start living as agents of reconciliation. That's my prayer for our church and community. That's my prayer for you. If you're not reconciled to God, that you'd be reconciled and start reconciling with all those around you. Let's pray.